Jason. Vicky. Vicky, two <laughs> Jews on a podcast. Who would have yeah. thought? Who would have thought? Thank you so, so, so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. You know, it, it's been a long invitation that um, I was going to follow you to the ends of the earth until I got you to say yes. But thank God Nancy Allen stepped in and and helped my hand. You bet. You have um, lots of now, advocates. Advocates everywhere. Well, that's a wonderful thing. So, Jason, what? tell me, before we start going backwards, tell me what you're doing right now. Are you... Are you totally back to living? Is life normal now? Are you still a little COVID cautious? What's your life like now? Um, oh, I think I'll probably be COVID cautious for the rest of my life. Um, um, yeah, we're we're back. We, um, you know, the one thing we're not doing really, <clears throat> excuse me, is eating indoors if we can avoid it in in a restaurant. So we are going out. I'll, my wife and I are happy to dine outside with friends. Um, our solution to the pandemic was, uh, I'm lucky enough that my grown sons live a mile in each direction of me. So nice. we have a wonderful backyard and we would meet back there all the time. And we've kept that up. So, um, but I've gone to the theater. I've gone to movies. I've okay, gone wait, to you've movies. gone to theater and movies. This I haven't yeah. done. I, so yeah. do you mask? Yes. Yes, um, it was great when everybody masked, but now the mandates are gone. Mm -hmm. But I, I always ma I mask when I go into a, a market. I mask when I go into a, a store. Um, uh, even when I was in New York, um, there were I, I would wear. I have a little lanyard so I can wear the mask around my neck. <laughs> yeah, like and I juice. and if I was walking down the street and I wasn't, you know, in a in a throng of people. Mm -hmm. I'd keep it off, but if I mm -hmm. saw that the street was narrowing or there was going to be a, I'd just throw it on, you know, just for those couple of minutes. I'm, I'm, I see no re, I've been so lucky. Everybody in my family, my immediate family has, we're novids. We have not gotten it. I'm and, not going to with me either. And, you know, I, I'm asthmatic, so I don't need to get anything that's going to compromise me bronchially. Right. Um, and it is no skin off of my teeth. I, I actually don't mind the mask. I get, I get bothered a little bit less, you know. Right. It's fine, and I feel like I'm doing it to protect me, but I'm actually doing it to protect the people in my inner circle because I I'm in crowds more often than the average person. And okay, so how does that work, Jason? You you mentioned New York. Yeah. Traveling, like I haven't been on a plane yet. Was that in? How was that? How is that? It's fine. I, I mean, I've I've done it both when everybody was masked at the airport and everybody's masked on the flight. Right. I still mask at the airport and I still mask on the flight. I, <laughs> and I and I haven't gotten sick. So, um, you know, it's everybody does their own thing. But I really would prefer to not get this thing. Yeah. I'd, I'd get anything, frankly. And if <laughs> this is going to if this is going to aid and abet my health, I, I, I don't have any issues with it. And, and but I am. For the most part, back in the world and, and living my life, I've been on sets where I have to work, you know, and the are they still really cautious? Do they still have COVID protocol on set? They do. And some sets are are a little more hardcore than others. Mm -hmm. um, but I've been on sets that are both hardcore and not. And, and I am and I haven't gotten sex. So fabulous. Yeah. What, what were you doing? What were you in the middle of, if anything, when when the pandemic struck? Did it, um, did it impact your work? Sure. Well, everything came to a stop. Uh, 
I, I had lots of single night gig bookings, um, live bookings, and I was about to go direct a play that we're now hoping to take to Broadway, but we were we had an out of town theater and we were sort of gearing up into pre-production to get that going and that all ground to a halt. So, mm -hmm. um, but I did have work during the pandemic. I was very lucky. I was able to take uh, a lot of the corporate events that I was going to do live uh, became online events. I mean, when Zoom stepped up to meet the demand, because um, I, I would do uh, a sort of a Q&A show. And when I did it live, it had some music in it. So we take the music out and we make it a Q&A show. Right. And uh, a lot of the Q&A is geared to be entertaining. And some of it is geared to be uh, inspiring is the wrong word, but to speak to things. Yes, you're inspiring. You're allowed to. You're very good. But some of my some of my stories and and the lessons learned from them do translate to any business and any walk of life. So right. it was very easy to transfer those to an online situation, and I was lucky enough to keep booking them. And so I had stuff to do. And was there a period though when when lockdown first happened and they were like, for two weeks you have to stay home? It's like, well, two weeks? What do you mean I have to stay home for two weeks? So in that initial period before we all kind of found Zoom, what did you do? Like when you were home and you were hanging out, were yeah. you productive? Were you, did you watch TV? What'd you do? I, I don't remember if I was productive, but I do remember we were all really busy because in the, in the beginning part of this, before they really knew how this spread, if you remember, we were all driving ourselves crazy going, you can't pick up a piece of mail. You, if you have a, if you go in the grocery store, you have to wash the bag before you bring it in the, you know, we were, we were nuts. Yes. So there was that. And also, you know, I, I, I will tell you, thank you. I've been fortunate enough to be able to afford a housekeeper five days a week. She was gone. Right. Uh, my assistant was gone. So, you know, there's plenty to do. Um, as my mother said, she would always judge a house. You know, it was no good if a girl had to show up two times a week. That was too big a house. You didn't need that. House. <laughs> my house, you need three times a week minimum. So I was I was cleaning. I was dusting. I was vacuuming. I was doing laundry and ironing. You know, it's, you're busy. And so you've been married for 40 years. Yeah. 43 years with your wife. How how did that impact your relationship? Did you get on each other's nerves? Was it better? Was it great? Was it was it challenging? I mean, come on, 40 years. Okay, so here's the truth. Okay. God's honest truth. Yeah. My wife and I have worked on this marriage for a long time. I mean, we went to couples therapy many, many years ago. I've I'm still in therapy. I'm constantly trying to figure out how to live this life and be whatever the best version of myself I can be. But um, so we were we were a good couple but before the pandemic. But what was surprising was that, you know, six months into the pandemic where we were really just us. Mm -hmm. And I remember turning to her one night and going, you know, this doesn't suck. I'm I'm more than content having this time with you. And, you know, my wife's a painter. She has a studio above the garage. So she would go out and do her work. I had, you know, writing and I had other things to do. So we'd be apart for big chunks of the day, but it was just us. And and that was just fine. In fact, it was it was lovely. And I and I remember writing in my journal many nights or even saying to her some nights before we'd fall asleep, I go, 
you know what I've learned? I, I don't need a lot else in this life other than you, my love. So This um, is a beautiful story. I am loving this story. We're, we're lucky. We're lucky. We got through a lot of tricky stuff. Well, you also, you did the work. We, we tried to do the work. Yeah. You know. Speaking of doing the work, have you seen Stutz? No. On Netflix? No. Jonah Hill, his session with his therapist. Oh, I've just read about this, but I haven't seen it. Yeah. No. You must. For somebody, yeah. anybody who's been in therapy, hello. It is, it, it's really? astounding. And it's basically. It's not, like, it's not like I've got through my therapy. Now I got to go through Jonah's therapy. <laughs> I, it's not that. Actually, <laughs> we don't go. He doesn't go through his okay. therapy. It's all about the therapist. And um, it's okay. pretty fascinating because he has great tools for how to live this life and how to just navigate the way through life. Anyway, you just made me think of that. But I, I so how did you meet your wife? 40 years. Come on. Um, sometimes we, we give people the bare param- parameters of this story and they think ill of either of us. But I tell you. <laughs> It was absolutely a lovely thing, although the circumstance sounds like the worst. I was an office flunky in a casting office. (laughs) She was trying to be an actress. And on the one day she came in to register for for background work, for extra work, our receptionist who usually handled that was out and I was in in the reception window. And this stunningly beautiful girl, came in so out of my league, but she was a chalalia. She was nervous. Her resume didn't fit the picture. She couldn't staple anything. And I just went, this, she's, she is so adorable. And I knew I was smitten, but I couldn't figure out, you know, how do you ask, how, the, the circumstance is bad if I say, hey, would you like to go out? But eventually I, I with as much humility and putting the I said I'm I'm nothing I'm just a flunk I'm a struggling actor like you I'm just trying to but I I don't know very many people in town would you like to go to a movie sometime and I was so not her type but she thought well if I say no I'll never get work at that office so she you know she figured she could beat me off if if it got you know if I somehow got aggressive and we we went out for the first evening and went to dinner and saw a movie and chatted and, and uh, I, I was all in, but you'd have to ask her why this, I, I am, my wife could have been a model at the time. She, she's 5'10", belt, gorgeous, you know, and um, so better educated than I am. It just, there was no reason this girl with all those options should have gone, hey, this guy's kind of cute. But she stuck with me and we have been, we've just been laughing through it all. And that's it right there. It's all about the guy who can make us laugh. Yeah. It's all I'll tell you the secret too, because people have asked me, you know, is there, is there a secret to getting through Mm -hmm. the bumps that come with any long-term, it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be a marriage. It can be a friendship. It can be another relative. It can be anything. Um, what I what I have come to learn is the person that loves you can see you on your absolutely worst day when you are being the worst version of yourself, even to them. But they remember what you are like on your best day Ooh. and they lead you back. Oh, I love that. And that's that has been Dana for me forever. And 
only you know it took me a while to are understand. you willing are you willing in the moment when you're being your worst self and she gently starts to lead you back or because you've had therapy because you've done this or do you willingly go along or do you sometimes not want to go there you know it if i if if i get to the place where i even you know would be resistant to that at this point it has nothing to do with her it well, has of course. to do with a gig or it has of to course. do with a thing and so sometimes i need to be able to get the thing that's irritating me or motivating me out of my reign of you know out of my mind's eye so i can see her but once i see her yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I forgot. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> I love this story. So, so Jason, that, that I wanted to ask you this. Are, do you believe that things happen for a reason? Do you believe that, that it's random? Do you believe that you were kind of destined to live this life? You were destined to find this woman? Or do you think that things just happen? Um, I do not think it's destiny. I, I'm torn on that, Vicki. I do believe I do believe to a certain degree in the concept of soulmates, but I don't necessarily mean that romantically. I, mm -hmm. I think my sons and I are in some ways soulmates. I, I feel like, I used to say this to my, to my younger son, Noah, when he was little, because he was the philosopher, he's the big thinker. And he was asking me about, you know, what I thought about death and afterlife and all that kind of stuff. And I said, well, you know, Noah, I can look at it through the science window that we're made of energy. You can actually see the energy. You can read it on a meter. And then when mm -hmm. we die, that energy disappears. But science tells, science tells us you can't destroy energy. It only changes. So that energy has to go somewhere. And maybe some part of us is attached to that energy. I said, but here's the thing I have no rational understanding of. From the second you and your brother were born, and I mean from the second you were born, if I had to lay down my life to save you, it wouldn't have even been a question. Why would I do that for a stranger? If you were really someone who had only been in my life for a second, sure, there's biology and there's all this other stuff, but it goes beyond that for me. I said, I, I think you and Gabe and mom and I and some other people, I feel like we maybe traveled together. Yes. And yes. so I do, I do have that, but at the same token, uh, and Dana and I talk about this all the time, usually as we're sitting there and realizing the blessings around us, and we realize in the same second, there's a person who I don't know and may never know whose life is so the polar opposite, is not surrounded by a home does not have their health tonight, doesn't know how they're gonna get through this evening. They're cold or they're hot or they're mm -hmm. hungry or they're thirsty. And I go, there is no reason that I'm here and they're there. It's an accident of, of birth, education, circumstances, opportunities. Um, color. Yeah, the color of my skin, the quality of my education, mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of that stuff is luck and I, I look at my career and I and I go, I, I would like to believe when the opportunity came, I had enough ability to take advantage of it and that's why it, it came together. But there's lots of people as talented and trust me, far more talented who just don't get the opportunity. 
And you go, why me? Why not them? Why not them? So I, I do believe that some of it is just random and luck and, you know, a, an event creates energy and the energy goes forward and trickles and it creates some other piece of energy. But if you're not there at the inception, mm-hmm. you miss the wave. So it, it's all, it's all, ask me when, you know, in the next afterlife, we'll talk. We'll have we'll a, talk. a podcast in the sky and we'll figure it out. Well, all. you know, I believe that thing that I, I think we travel with people. And I think that when we meet somebody and it's instant, instant like, instant energy, instant easy, it's because we've met before, because we've done this before with them. That's my there, thing. There's a, that feeling of, of familiarity in those Yeah, things. I think there's something to that. And I, and I, I, I want, okay, so, so let's go back. So you're a kid in New Jersey, your parents, are your parents, I know your mother was a nurse. What did your father do? It, it depends when, when we catch him. <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> my, my dad um, did many things, uh, um, many unexpected things, many things out of necessity. My dad was um, a widower before he met my mom. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have half siblings who are 14 and 20 years older than me. Um, my dad was really a working class guy. He drove a bus for many years. He sold life insurance for many years. He somehow worked at Bell Laboratories, which you would think that's a high security Mm -hmm. and high technical job, but he was a project manager. He had like a a year of college, I think. You know, he was not that kind of education. Mm -hmm. He did many, many different things during his life. And and a lot of them, you know, were, were gotten to by desperation and favors. And some of them were things he loved doing, but it really depends if you said, what was he doing when I was born? He was, uh, I believe, working for a life insurance company. What was he doing two years before I was born? He was driving a bus. What was he doing when I was 10? He was doing something else. So so was showbiz, okay, were your parents funny? Um, yes, my, both my parents could tell a joke and they could tell a good story. But, you know, I I couldn't tell you exactly what their sense of humor was. My dad, and I'm afraid that I, growing up in Jersey and being my father's son, I have more of this than I would like. But there is a sense of humor. My dad grew up on the Lower East Side of New York, and it's Mm -hmm. the same thing there. If you love somebody, you gush them, you (laughs) you jab at them. And in New Jersey, it's called busting balls. And, you know, and so... That was my dad's sense of humor. It was rough around the edges. And when I, uh, because I I didn't set out to be an entertainer, I sent out to be an actor where somebody gives me lines and I say them. But as as this crazy course my, my path took, I find myself at times being an entertainer and my default is to that kind of sense of humor. And sometimes I go, what am I saying? I'm being so nasty. <laughs> You know, it's not somebody who knows me that I can play this game with. I'm just doing the wrong thing. But yes, they 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 were they were amusing in their own way. Yeah. Okay, so when you made this choice, which I want to talk about that. So I I know that you were a latchkey kid, and so tell us the story. Tell us what drew you to showbiz, to theater. Um, well, from the audience side, my parents started taking me when I was very young. We mentioned uh, before we started today that uh, I think I saw my first Broadway show when I was five or six years old. And I, mm-hmm. you know, you don't normally take a five-year-old to a Broadway right. show. But my my mom says I was just, you know, sat enraptured by the whole thing. So I clearly 
loved it from the audience side. Mm -hmm. um, what, what, what was the first thing you wanted to be, Jason? It was like when you're a little kid, did you have that thought? Magician. You wanted, you wanted to be a magician. But I wanted that primarily because I, my siblings were so much older than me that I was really being raised as practically an only child because mm -hmm. they were either in their lives or my, my sister went to college when I was five years old. So um, I, I was an overweight, small, shy, frightened, not a huge personality kid. Were you uh, smart? Were you good in school? I was okay. I was, I was smart. I wasn't the world's greatest student, but I was mm -hmm. intrinsically bright. <clears throat> and I saw magic on TV and I went, oh, powers. I want powers because I felt like that would make me feel protected. It would make me feel powerful. It might make me feel special. So I, you know, it, but that's that childish view of, of the magician has really got powers as opposed to there's a trick. Trick, yeah. But I started, I became really serious at around six or seven years old. I got the magic kits and the books and I would spend the time in my room and work on the stuff. And, and it takes hours and hours and oh hours. Oh my God, I, yeah. If you're going to be that kind of magician, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, which is exactly the reason why I knew it, it wasn't going to be me because I, <laughs> I didn't have the discipline. And I wanted to be a close-up magician with cards and coins. And I, I, have, I have little hands. I'm a little guy. So for me to even palm a deck of standard playing cards, there's a corner of a card always peeking out. I just, <laughs> I don't have it. So um, by, sh by sheer <laughs> fortune, after I finished sixth grade, we moved from Maplewood, New Jersey to Livingston, New Jersey, which is about a 12 mile difference. Mm -hmm. I knew nobody in Livingston, New Jersey, and I moved there. In How the old summer. are you? I was 12. Mm -hmm. So my mother, because I'm a latchkey kid, there's nobody home all day. She says, I got you a pass to the community pool <laughs> because nowhere else does a fat kid score, you know, big kudos <laughs> like the community pool. <laughs> and I'm, I'm in this pool. I don't know a living soul. Oh, I'm in water I up to my neck. And, and this really lovely, beautiful um, teenage girl came up to me from out of nowhere and just said, do you sing? And I went, if I had been a mute, I would have said yes. <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah. And she said, well, and wait, had you sung to this around the house and yeah. you know, around school, <laughs> you, you sing, you have to sing yeah. at the assemblies, but I, you know, um, so she said, would, you know, would you, would, they were doing a, a teen production of sound of music and they had lost the oldest Von Trapp boy in the family. And you and, look, if, if anybody looks well, German they were desperate. I mean, anybody who was going to do theater had, had already, so they lost this kid. So I went that night, having never been on stage and not knowing what to expect, to the rehearsal. And they said, we're going to teach you Doe a Deer. And I said, well, I've, I've seen the movie. I think I know Doe a Deer. And, but I own the soundtrack album. I mean, you know. So I started to sing. And they went, well, the minute when you go into school theater, and you don't just suck, <laughs> everyone's your best friend. You're immediately in a community. Especially if you're a guy. Especially if you're a guy, that's yeah. right. Especially yeah. if you're a guy. So suddenly this kid who didn't know anybody and was lonely and isolated and didn't have a community, like in a moment, in a nanosecond, I suddenly have all these people who seem to oh. be 
genuinely supportive, genuinely interested, who seem to have common interests with me. And then I got on stage and I went, oh, this is fun. I, I like this. This is fun. But it wasn't about the applause for me. It was about, I want to stay in this community. Wow. I don't want to lose this. I have found my tribe and I want to stay here. And so that's what sort of set me down the path. Okay. So you did, you did the community theater. You, okay. So when you went to BU, did you, did you go, you went with a, for a drama degree? Yes. Well, I, yeah, I had already stepped into, here we're talking about crazy good fortune. So I was working with a a children's theater group uh, in New Jersey called the Pushcart Players. And they did little original musicals for children. And I was in their group and um, a father in one of the audiences was a television producer and he decided these little musicals might make a good TV series. So he ponied it up and we all joined AFTRA. Okay, so tell us a story about your name while you're joining AFTRA. Oh yeah, so (laughs) when I started thinking, it it took about two, I was 12 when I stepped on stage for Sound of Music. Mm -hmm. This next thing happened when I was about 14. So I had already been fantasizing about my career, you know, in (laughs) Chauvin and, so my real name is Jay, J-A-Y, Scott Greenspan. Greenspan had playground trauma for me because it Wait, was- re- Are you related to Alan? No. Well, no. My, who knows? Okay. There's not that many Greenspan, so maybe, <laughs> but not, not in any way that we know. But Greenspan was one of those names on the playground that it was just green fill in the blank and, and nothing good would ever go in the blank. You know? So, so I, I kind of like- Like what? Wait, like what? Green what? Green shit, green F, green, you know, anything, anything a child would say to hurt your feelings would fit after green. It was only augmented by the word green in front of it. So, um, so I, I kind of hated the sound of my last name, but I thought no problem. My mother named me Jay, but she always called me Jason. And I don't know why. So I thought, okay, I'm, I'm Jay Scott Greenspan. I'll be Jason Scott. So I went to the union to sign up to get my union card. And they said, would you like a stage name? I said, yes, I would. Thank you. I'd like to be Jason Scott. And they looked at their shoot and they went, nope, we got a dozen of them in every spelling you can think of. And so I couldn't. And I I went, oh, my God, that's all I ever thought about was Jason Scott. I didn't even think that I couldn't be that. And you're on the spot and you've got to do it right now. And I got to sign these papers. I mean, it's (laughs) now or never. And so... In that moment, I, I actually just had the thought about, I bet my dad is sad that, I, that I'm skittish about our family name. You know what? He's Alex Greenspan. I was, can I try Jason Alexander? And they went, yeah, you can be that. And that's where it was in that moment. Wow. And who knew? It's like, you know, so I, I think it's uh, Ray Romano does a great joke about how he didn't know the first time he slept with his wife that he had picked his side of the bed for the rest of his life. I didn't know. I didn't realize I had picked my thing for forever. I, I might've chosen another name, but I was a dumb kid. And I went, Oh, okay. That's what I am now. So. Kind of beshared it right yeah. there. And so at what point, okay. So, so, all right. So back to the story. So when I so- went to college, I actually had already begun a, a, a professional career. I I had a. You were making career. you were making money around. I was making money. I was doing commercials primarily. And, okay, so uh, how did you how did you get how did that first happen for you, Jason? That little TV series that this guy wanted to shoot of the mm-hmm. thing. He couldn't sell it as a series, but he did sell it as a one-time early Sunday morning special 
on the local New York, New Jersey CBS affiliate. And these two women, Jean Nielitz and Ann Steele, they had a management company for teenage and child talent. And they saw that thing and went, we like him. And they found me and said, we want to rep you. And I went, okay. <laughs> and so they started, you know, they, they were my entree into the professional world. And that's when I started doing mostly, I would audition for everything, but I was doing commercials. And so by the time I was auditioning for the college theater programs, I knew this was what I was going to do because I already had a pat on the head and, a, you know, that said, yes, you can make a living at this. And, and so I had that going in as I was auditioning for colleges. And how did your parents feel about you becoming an actor? <laughs> They're Jewish. So I, I'm- Yeah, you've <laughs> almost said it all right there. Um, they were- they were extraordinary. Uh, oh. They were incredibly frightened at the notion um, because they didn't know much about show business, but they do know the failure rate is much higher than the success rate. Sure. They, my mother had fantasized because she was in medicine that I would go into medicine and my father mm -hmm. wanted anything from me that would be stable and make money. And- um, Did they want you to do a backup major behind yeah. the yeah they did and um but as nervous as they were the support was overwhelming I, when i got that manager i was 14 i couldn't get into the city by myself my parents would drive me to auditions and wait outside for however long it took for me wow. to do that thing when i was doing something when i was on stage up until i made my broadway debut my parents saw every performance of every live thing I ever did. And, and they, they took pride in it. They took joy in it. So their support was overwhelming. Mm. Their concern was real. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I said to my mother when I, when I left college, because I had to leave college for a gig after my junior year. And I said, mom, I'm not stupid. If this doesn't work, I will give this a certain amount of time, but I'm not going to throw away my life. If this doesn't work, I will find my way back to a degree and I will find my way back to something else. But I what was the gig that it. took you out of school? It was it was twofold. It was a, I did a movie after the summer of my junior year called The Burning. It was a, just a schlocky little horror film, but it, it went over. This was Holly, Hunt, Holly. It was Holly Hunter's Holly. first film. It was my first film. Um, how, how did you get that? Straight up audition. Your, your agent sent you up for yeah, an audition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it ran late and I couldn't make it back to the start of my first semester senior year. So I was going to take one semester off and then you know graduate a, a semester late. Mm -hmm. That's when I went to work for that casting director who had put me in the film. And she said, well, if you need a job for the semester, come work in my office and you'll learn about stuff. And during that semester, I got Merrily We Roll Along, which was going to become my Broadway debut. And I met Dana. And between the two of those things, I went, I, I can't go back to Boston right now. And so that that's that's where my college education went down the drain. So you start, you're, you're how old when you're doing Merrily? You're, you're, you're... I think I turned 20 just before Merrily. Um, wow. And I so was 19 when I got it. So you're doing Sondheim on Broadway right out of the goddamn box. So what was it that had to be like a pinch me 
like Hal oh. Prince, Stephen Sondheim. Oh my God. Broadway was the thing that I dreamed of. And I really thought, I, I was a reasonable kid. I thought I'll put in my time, I'll do the summer stocks, I'll do the rep companies. And maybe if I'm lucky in my forties, I'll, I'll get to Broadway, <laughs> you know? And at 19, I'm on Broadway working for Christ and Moses. I, I mean, it doesn't get any bigger. It, it's, and I just went, what is, what, what, win, lose, or draw? Where does this go from here? This was my dream. Now what? And and by the way, messed with me for a while because- Did it? Yeah, because- I you mean, such know. huge success so quickly. Oh my well, God. Well, thankfully, and I say thankfully so strangely, the show was not a big success. Right. The show, yes, had it. So issues. I got a dose of, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. And you have to learn how to navigate both of those. But um, Jason, but, what was that like the first time that you walked out on that stage and the I'm, I'm getting goosebumps. I'm getting for Clem thinking about it. The first time you walked out on that Broadway stage and the audience was in the house and there you are. I mean, you're living that moment. So the first night of the first preview of Merrily is every experience you'll ever have in show business all in one thing. Because the expectation and anticipation and excitement on both sides of the curtain, as that overture started to play, of this brand new Hal Prince, George Firth, Stephen Sondheim collaboration was explosive. It was incandescent. And as the play kept going, you could see that audience walk away from us and then literally walk away. And then the struggle for the for the guiding powers to try and figure out what was wrong mm -hmm. and everything we all went through to try and fix this thing that was not going to get fixed, at least not with our production. Mm -hmm. And then have it, I have an 18 month contract and I closed in two weeks and without any prospects. And I have a marriage coming up and I can't quite get back to school and I, and you go, I don't know what I'm doing tomorrow. So it was the education of a, of, of here's a life and showbiz, kid. Here's life and showbiz, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, but in my case, again, luck. Though that production of Merrily was not successful, the part that I played was unique, funny, sympathetic, and crystal clear in a show that was not always crystal clear. Mm. So it got me opportunities. Had I been in the lead role, which was carrying all that was dysfunctional about the show at the time, I might not have fared so well. But the fact that I was in the one part that everyone went, that's good. I got opportunities from it. So Jason, from what I understand, you didn't start out leaning towards musical theater you were doing Shakespeare you were doing serious stuff how Michael. did you segue from that <laughs> to a Broadway musical at 19 were you studying dance were you studying singing how the hell did you get there so it's not true that I was not interested in musical theater ah but the kind of musical theater I was most interested in was not the song and dance entertainment musical comedy with a k it was Sondheim, it was, mm. you know, the kind of stuff how Prince was doing, the kind of right. stuff Kander and Ebb were doing, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I had seen um, 
when I started hanging out with those kids in, in what was now middle school, when I said, oh, I'm going to be an actor, we would all go see theater on the weekends in New York because it was so cheap back mm -hmm. then. And I saw Ben Vereen do Pippin very early in his run. And that's when I went, that's when the magician kid in me went, that's the magic I want to do. What he, what he was on that stage was so incandescent to me that the next day I was talking to my mom about, I got I to gotta take dance lessons. I got to take voice lessons. I got to, because I'm going to be the next Ben Vereen. And, uh, and Ben, by the way, has had that effect on many, many, many people. <laughs> yes. But um, so musicals were definitely in the cards for me. But when I went to college, thinking about training to be an actor, I was not thinking to play the comedies. I was thinking, I want to learn how to do Death of a Salesman. I want to learn how to do Shakespeare. I want to learn how to do, you know, I always use the, because, it, because of this professor who spoke to me in, in college. But I thought I'd be a great Hamlet. And I wanted to, I wanted to be that. I wanted to be cast like that. Mm -hmm. And I had this wonderful professor named James Spruill, who is no longer with us, who cared enough to bring me into his office in the, in the middle of my sophomore year and say to me, I know you want to play Hamlet and you might be a profound Hamlet, but you're never going to play Hamlet. Oh. Not, in, not in a commercial way. Mm -hmm. So you might want to get good at Falstaff. And I said, I, try, I go, what is he talking about? But then, you know, you have to look in the mirror sometimes. I was 18 years old. I was always carried at least 10 pounds more weight than I should, and sometimes more. I was five foot six, and I was already losing my hair. <laughs> I'm not gonna be, I'm not gonna be the most obvious choice for Hamlet. And what he was saying to me was, you have to study comedy. You have to understand what comedy is, what great comedians do and how they do it, if you wanna have a, a commercially successful career. And I took him at his word. I took him very seriously. And I and I actually sort of- Did created comedy attract you before that? I loved it. I just didn't think I was going to be very good at it. Um, so you didn't think of, you weren't the class clown, you weren't the oh, one crack- No, 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 no. no if no. anything, I covered, uh, uh, starting somewhere in high school, I covered my insecure, because I was doing, I was performing, mm -hmm. I was, I had focus on me that I didn't quite know what to do with. And the shy kid in me was afraid of it and wanted to run. And I couldn't do that. So I compensated without realizing it by taking on a veneer that was confident to the point of cocky. Wow. It wasn't true, but it was protecting me mm -hmm. to a certain degree. Um, so, but I never, I, so I did comedy in high school, but I just never thought, I don't, I didn't look at myself and say, you got a great sense of humor, man. <laughs> Uh, I just didn't, I didn't think of myself that way. In fact, the more I watched funny people, the more I thought, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. Um, but then I started, you know, studying them with an eye to, well, what, what can I <laughs> say, borrow, but steal? What can I learn? What can I try on to cobble together my own comedic sensibility and, and started thinking along those lines and thank God I did because most of my career <laughs> has been on the comedic side of the line. And you're also an incredible mimic, which, uh, where did, how did you find that? 
I, I, you're, you're giving me something that, uh, believe me, I am friends. No, with you artists. are. I've heard you do a bunch of people and you're really good at it. I, I can, um, part of what I learned to do when I, when I said, okay, let me, let me watch funny people is I started just watching people mm-hmm. and I enjoyed seeing how does somebody move through space? What, what, what's their walk all about? How do, when they're standing at rest, how are they standing? How are they sitting? What are their vocal tics? What is the melody of their voice? How do they move their face? How do they hold their hands? You know, um, and I would keep notebooks of this stuff thinking I'll build characters out of this. But in doing that, I got, I, I don't think I'm a good uh, impressionist, but I do think I can get the essence of somebody. I can get sort of the, the major characteristics of somebody. And it's, it's obvious, it's just observation. When, when I understood on Seinfeld, because I had started exploring George thinking Woody Allen. Woody okay, Allen. We, okay, let's jump there. Yeah, and, but when I finally understood somewhat early on, and, and if you watch the really early episodes of the show. Which I did, of course. I, I am trying, I'm trying to, to incorporate Woody Allen into what I'm doing, thinking that's the right sound, that's the right attitude, that's the right mannerisms. Until I came to understand that that George was kind of an avatar for Larry David. Okay, what was the, what was the uh, awakening on that, Vicky? I wish I could remember the exact episode, but it was a fairly fairly early one, and we did the table reading, and I thought that the that the story that George was engaged in was kind of nutty. I, I thought what was happening for him was odd, and I actually had the audacity. <laughs> <laughs> to go to Larry after the reading and say, Larry, you, you have to help me because this would never happen to anybody. But if it did, nobody would react like this. So what are you going for? What are you thinking? You know, thinking he would give me some insight as to this fantastical thing. And his answer was, I don't know what you're talking about. This happened to me and it's exactly what I did. <laughs> and in that moment, I went, oh, oh, um, <laughs> And I just, we didn't talk about it. We never said really? it. Really? I just, I made a decision. Start studying Larry. Start thinking about how Larry takes space and Larry's vocal rhythms and Larry's little ticks, and see if those won't give you an insight into this character that you don't wow. have yet. And, and so being able to sort of observe and capture the essence of somebody was extremely helpful and that's a great example and did at what point did larry pick up that you were doing larry (laughs) how long did it take larry to figure that out i I, you know did he get it did he did he see this the the change in you maybe i again this is not something we ever talked about until really it was a very funny thing seinfeld had ended and what? now, Larry, yeah. And now, Larry decided he was going to do a, a an arc of episodes on Curb, mm-hmm. where there was a Seinfeld reunion. <laughs> so we all go great because we knew there wasn't going to be any other kind of reunion show. It had to be something like this. So we all sign up for it, and in the in the story of that arc, Jason quits, and Larry says, "Well, I can play George." I'll do, I am George. I can play George, right? <laughs> First time I ever heard anything like that come out of his mouth, by the way. But the the capstone to it, there were 
two Seinfeld scenes written to be performed because nothing is written on Curb. But right. These Seinfeld scenes were written to be like episodes of the reunion show. And now they're going to do them with Larry playing George. <laughs> I'm not on the set that day because I'm not in those scenes. And I got a, a call from Larry early that morning saying, you have, you've got to come down here. I don't know how to do you. <laughs> and I said, Larry, I'm do, I was doing Just you. Do I was doing you. <laughs> Just do you. And he went, no, 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 no. And he knew that I, that's the first time we actually said, you know, I know, I know, you know. But we had never wow. talked about it during the Seinfeld years. Wow. Okay. So now we have to go back about, uh, there's a lot of Broadway in there and, and, yeah. and you want a Tony and, and uh, before we come back to Seinfeld, tell us about, about uh, how, about um, Jerome Robbins Broadway and how, because you resisted, you didn't want that part, did you? Well, I didn't understand it. Um, the, the show as presented before it got shaped was presented to me as a dance review of Jerome Robbins' greatest dances from Broadway, none of which I could dance. <laughs> and, um, and the producer, who was a friend of mine, said, and we want you to be like the host, the MC." And I went, I don't want to eight times a week for a year on Broadway to go, and then he wrote, and then he wrote. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. He said, no, 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 you're going to play Tevya, and you're going to play Pseudolus. And you're gonna... I went... For what? A, a minute? And then it goes into the dance. I mean, you know, <laughs> and it wasn't until I, I finally, you know, knuckled under and I said, okay, I'll come in and meet him and I'll read for him. But I, I, I don't think I want, I don't think there's anything there for me. And I auditioned for Jerry and, and he was, he was very um, complimentary. And the reason that the producer was pushing me for it is, when I, I had also done the Neil Simon show Broadway bound with this producer. And while I was doing that show, I realized that my character has a pad and pencil in his hand for the whole first act. And we had some older actors in that show who were prone to line fluffs and they were sometimes very funny. So I would always write them down on stage. And then once a month, I would print this thing called Broadway blown where I would write <laughs> the actual line and then how it came out that night. And then I'd make some sort of silly comment about it. And it became really popular among, even Neil Simon loved it. How fabulous. That convinced Manny Eisenberg that I was a writer. <laughs> and Manny Eisenberg had pitched me as a writer to Jerome Robbins. He said, this kid can help you shape the show and write whatever the connective material is, and then he can play it. Had you, had you been a writer? No. no. <laughs> I mean, I've written, but I wasn't, no, no, no. So I went to Jerry Robbins and I do my audition and Robbins says, why don't you want to be in my show? And I, I explained it the way I explained it to you. Which is balls to the walls, by the way. Well, I, said, that to I him. said, Mr. Robbins, <laughs> I, I, I will be the first person in line to buy a ticket for this show. I'm not the kind of dancer that can dance your material. And I don't want to be a host. I just, I don't want to do that. It's not what I am. I'm not an entertainer. I'm an, I'm an actor. And he said, okay, Manny, Manny tells me that you are a very bright guy and that you, I, he said, I, I know what I want to do, but I don't know how it all fits together. And I need someone to dramaturg it and to write it. You'd be writing your own role. And he said, oh. if you will do this for me, if you will help me shape this thing, I'll make you a promise. If you don't like what you're doing as a performer at opening night, after opening night, I don't care what your contract says, I'll let you go. 
knowing that I also wanted to be a director and saying, hmm, I could spend six months to a year at the feet of, of one of the best director choreographers in the history of the Broadway theater. Maybe this isn't a bad thing to take advantage of. I did it thinking it won't do anything for my career as an actor, but I will learn something if I do this. So I took the gig under, under that circumstance. And then because I know nothing about how to conduct my own affairs or guide my own career, I want a friggin' Tony for it. Uh, for being the actor in it. So, um, you know. And what was that experience like writing it with him? The whole experience of putting that, so we we hold the Guinness Book of World's Record. We rehearsed for six months. Wow. It's the longest rehearsal period of any Broadway show ever. Um, And much as Charles Dickens would tell you, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times because Jerry Robbins himself was all of that. He was Mm -hmm. possibly one of the most brilliant men of the theater that I will ever meet in my lifetime or that may ever exist. He also had demons mm-hmm. and he he took his demons out often on people that adored him and that uh, believe in him and that were standing nearby. And did so it happen to you? Very rarely to me because mm-hmm. I was not I was not a dancer. Mm-hmm. I also I didn't think the show was going to do anything for me. So if he said, you're fired, I'd go, okay. (laughs) Sorry, but okay. I I didn't see how it was going to be a big thing for me. So I was also one of the deputy. I was an an equity deputy for that that company, myself and another person. And so we were charged with protecting our company to the extent that the equity rules would allow. And some of the things he was doing were in defiance of those rules. So often I'd have to go and go, uh-uh, can't do that. Um, and there were times when he was particularly cruel when I would say to him, there was no reason for you to be like that. Everybody here is trying as hard as they can to give, they're here for you. They want to serve you. It's not so easy to serve you all the time, but you don't need to treat anybody. And sometimes he would get it and sometimes he wouldn't, but I can tell you. That is balls to the walls also right there. He loved every person in that company he did and and at some time or another they all knew it mm. so he was everything mm. I, I remember after all that prep standing next to him backstage getting ready for opening night and he had tears in his eyes and I went what are you are you nervous what and he goes I don't want this to end oh. he loved he loved being with all of us he loved working on things and getting it wrong and getting it right he would tell you, I'm sure that outside of his ballet life, that he never had a better experience on the Broadway stage than he did with that show. And we knew that. So we adored him and I adore him. And he was often impossible. And, and one of the most difficult people I've ever met. But okay, so day, my was- last my last theatrical question, and then we'll yeah. move on. But okay, the rink. So Liza Minnelli, Cheetah Rivera. I mean, you have had incredible company in your career. Wow, 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 wow. Um, Liza Minnelli, that was a point in her life when things weren't so wonderful, right? Um, she, Liza, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm not the, I, I can't walk you through every minute, but I can tell you that Liza ended her run in our show early because it was, I think, the first time that she had to go to Betty Ford because mm-hmm. she'd gotten, she had gotten herself so sick. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I'm sure it was a, a mixed bag and, a, and not an easy time for her. And, but how about for you as an actor with her when she's in, I'm an addict in recovery, um, erratic behavior, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes with that. Was she a professional through and through on stage? Like, If, you know, Liza, you know, you're also standing next to Cheetah Rivera, the most consummate mm-hmm. professional in the world. So Cheetah never missed a show. Liza mm-hmm. probably missed a dozen shows in the course mm-hmm. of nine months. Mm-hmm. But when she was there, no matter what was going on with her, no matter what condition she may have appeared to be in, in the wings mm-hmm. on that stage, she, she was, was Liza. She was, <laughs> she was it, man. Um, she never, ever didn't do the show. There was nobody else like her. The, there were wonderful actresses that stood in for her and then Stocker Channing eventually replaced her. All of those actresses were extraordinary. Mm-hmm. They that thing that Liza and Cheetah and only Liza and Cheetah could create with each other. It was a two-hander show for the most part. And if you didn't have two powerhouses equally matched, the show had no chance of working. And mm-hmm. those two ladies were that. I can tell you Liza was as fun and generous as anybody I've ever met, exciting every minute. I mean, you'd have to go, this crazy, I'm working on Liza Manelli, you know? Um, uh-huh. But the gift of that show to me was Cheetah. And mm. Cheetah, there were many times, but Cheetah, there was a moment that Cheetah through her actions taught me about what I might want to try and be like if I was ever lucky enough to have a significant career in this business. Because there was a policy on that show because the, the show was promoted to be about these two women. If right. either of them were out, it was not that show. So right. there was a policy of either of them were out that the audience could either get a refund or they could exchange their ticket for another night when they would both be there. Mm-hmm. This one night, um, Liza was out and there just weren't very many people in the audience. It was, you know, maybe a hundred, maybe a little more, but people wanted to see, you know, the two of them. So the stage managers went to Cheetah and said, you know, we're not going to make you do this. That's that's not right. How how many seats did the... How, yeah, probably 1,100 or something like that. So, you know, it, it would appear to be a virtually empty house. Right. And uh, they said, we don't have to do the show, Cheetah. It's okay. We're not going to do that to you. And Cheetah said, um, there were six guys like me in the show. We were the ensemble. And... Cheetah said, well, okay, great. Thank you. That's terrific. Let me just ask you a question. If we don't do the show, you're going to dock one eighth of the boys salary, right? Because they didn't do that show. You canceled the show. It's a loss. And they went, yeah, they will. So she said, call the boys down. So we all went down to her dressing room and she said, here's the situation. And you know, there's not many people out there. We don't have to do this. Let's, we could all go out to dinner. We'll, we'll have a party. We'll, you know, but you'll lose an eighth of your salary. She said, or this wonderful woman had had been rehearsed as Liza's understudy, but she had never had a put-in rehearsal. And she said, it's 100 people. This could be a great put-in for Mary. And it's fairly low state. You know, it'll be like a big rehearsal for her, but Mm -hmm. with all the elements. Uh, And then we can go have, you know, a fun dinner afterwards and we'll celebrate Mary. You guys want to do that? And we all went, yeah, let's (laughs) do that. Let's do that. And Cheetah must have seen 
that there was a thing in our eyes that said, oh, we're going to play. We're going to fool around. We're going to write, you know. And she said, hey, guys, the people that stayed, stayed. You give them our show, but we don't do this. And that is the moment where I went, okay, this is a arguably very insulting situation for this woman who is a gigantic star. She is one of the greatest stars of the Broadway stage. And because her partner isn't there that night, there's a very small audience. That's kind of insulting. Yeah. It doesn't feel good. Yeah. When confronted with that situation, her first priority was her colleagues and her second priority was her audience. And I, it hit me like a brick and I went, please God, if I am lucky enough to have a career in this business, please, I want to grow up to be Cheetah Rivera. Holy I want to shit. hold those things as the most important thing, not my ego, but my colleagues and my audience. Because if I can do that, then I will have earned the right to continue in this business. And it really, it stuck with me. And I've told Cheetah this many times. I said, Cheetah, I will love you forever if I had never met you. But what you, what you impacted on me that night I, I, I will carry with me till my dying day. It, it, she really taught me what it means to have a real career Oof. in our business of integrity. So that's my girl. Goosebumps. Oh, and so how did the show go that night? We had a blast. Mary was great. <laughs> and we had a blast. And I think that audience probably said, oh man, we really, we really had a score tonight. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't the Liza Cheetah thing, but Mary was terrific. And you know, you could and you guys that, gave it your all, and we gave it our all, and you could see that we were all there trying to make it happen for this this new actress in our show. It's one of those things that you know when you get to see, when you see an understudy go on and they're terrific, and that cast is going, oh my god, you've had like no rehearsal. How are you doing this? It it it's just magic. It's a magic part of being in a theater. Oh god, every story thrilling, Jason. I hope you're writing a book. Um, <laughs> No, seriously. Okay, so how did you segue from the Broadway stage to TV? I know uh, you were doing. I know you were doing uh, commercials and stuff. But yeah. how did you? How did you get a part? And then we got to get to Seinfeld because I, um, I uh, it's an easy segue to Seinfeld. I I, I won the Tony in 1989, mm -hmm. and um, very shortly after that, auditioned for Pretty Woman. And so phenomenal you are in that. You are so very, snaky, horrible. Very kind. I auditioned <laughs> for Gary Marshall. It was a lovely audition. And on no planet did Gary Marshall intend to cast me in that movie. He did not want me for that role. He, he felt that I was too young. I was, too, I was 29. I was playing Richard Gere's powerhouse attorney. Um, I was too baby-faced. I was too small. Nothing about me was right. To him except he liked the audition but mm -hmm. he said it's just not you he couldn't get the actor he wanted and now the movie started to film and do you know who that was i do but i won't say okay okay <laughs> a wonderful actor by the way it was a, it was a financial thing that actor wanted a better deal and they mm -hmm. just weren't getting it um long story short richard gear agreed to meet me at his office because the casting director had touted me to him um, Richard was significantly taller than me, so I stood on phone books and we taped a little scene. And then Richard took that tape to Gary Marshall and went, this is the guy, this is the guy. And once I got to the set 
and started being what Gary wanted, um, Gary became my biggest fan. So I, I'm indebted to Gary. Also, because I think Gary Marshall is the brother of Penny Marshall. Penny Marshall was married to Rob Reiner. Mm -hmm. Rob Reiner's the head of Castle Rock. Castle Rock is doing Seinfeld. And I think that's how my name got on a list of actors to put on tape in New York. And that was my first entree into the world of Seinfeld was just being randomly put on tape without anybody from the show there. No Larry, no Jerry, just a couple of pages of the original pilot script on tape. Which you're doing like Woody Allen. In which I'm basically doing Woody Allen. <laughs> That's where the glasses came from, from George, because I, I thought Woody Allen. That's where the very thick New York accent came from, from George, because I was literally doing Woody Allen. And, uh, but now and, there, was a, there was a long list <clears throat> of actors that were being considered for George, weren't there? Yeah, I don't know why. I, I, I believe, I could have my story wrong. <clears throat> I believe they made offers to actors in LA because there were people they were very high on. At one point, by the way, I think they were even looking at Rosie O'Donnell. What? Yeah, because at that point it was just a best friend. It didn't, I see. there was no Elaine in the pilot. So it made sense there could be a girl best friend, you know, that Jerry's not interested in. <clears throat> but it was also, I think, offered to Chris Rock. I think it was offered to Danny DeVito. I think it was offered to Letterman's band leader, Paul Schaefer. And your, your pretty woman, uh, Larry Miller, wasn't he up for... Uh, at In fact, the one other actor that read at the network the day that I read at the network was Larry Miller. And I went, I don't know all that much about Larry Miller, but I know he's one of Jerry's best friends. I'm not getting this thing. So I was loosey-goosey when I had to read for the network. Ah. Uh, but that's that's, I think that may be the connection of what got me to Seinfeld. I had done a couple of things in television. I had done a very short-lived series out of New York where I met some of my best friends in the world. But, you know, I was really a, a, a stage guy and a commercial guy. And I would occasionally show up in a scene in a TV movie or something else. But my career was, the, was theater and then Pretty Woman kind of put me in a big movie. But Huge I, I, I movie. I, yeah, I, I never thought of myself as a movie actor. I didn't think that was my... I still don't think that's where I do my best work, but um, but I think that was the connection to Seinfeld, which became making me a TV actor. So had you ever been, having done those Broadway shows, when was the first time you got recognized in real life? On the street? Yeah. Um, actually, even before I got to Broadway, because I had one commercial that ran by the end of its run it had run for five or six years um, wow. it was for western union money orders and it was three little vignettes and they would always keep changing the first two vignettes but they liked my vignette so much they kept tacking it onto the new commercials so i was the kid from the western union commercial i mean people didn't know my name but they went you're the western union guy so i had that experience but um it was really um it, it was pretty woman that that gave me that kind of heightened recognizability, but not necessarily in the best way, because I was the one that- You were The guy that every, every woman hated, you know? Yes. So <laughs> it, was not, it was not the easiest kind of recognition to have. How quickly, okay, so when Seinfeld first started, we, you know, I watched the first episode. I, I was there from the first minute, but a lot of people weren't, right? No. You were not a hit. No. At, at what point do you know what do you, okay, you start doing this. It's a show about nothing. Do you, when you first start doing this, did they had to do a chemistry read with you and 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 Jerry and and 
just that one day uh, with a, that I they flew me out to LA after I'd submitted my tape. Mm-hmm. I knew of Jerry. I had watched him perform. I had watched Larry perform, but I didn't mm-hmm. know them. And uh, I flew out to LA. I spent the better part of late morning and early afternoon hanging out with those two guys, talking about the role in the show and, you know, running the scene with Jerry a couple of times. And there, again, I, I was loosey goosey because I'm not getting this. Larry Miller's getting this. I mean, you know. Um, and we went to NBC and and I did my thing and 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 I and literally got cast right after that. So the the vibe that Jerry and I have as Jerry and George really started to develop once we started working on the show. And personal chemistry with with Jerry and with Michael, uh, and then with Julia. Was that there from the get-go or did that? So I don't know if I use the word chemistry. What what I what I would say is the there was a especially in a show that isn't really working, you know, the general attitude of actors is every man for himself, get a couple of moments, get a good piece of tape, because when this thing goes down, I have to audition for my next job. <laughs> So you're kind of in competition with your colleagues on a show that isn't working great. Historically, that was my experience. But on this show, I we were so, we just loved watching each other do their thing. There was a great respect for what we were seeing and an and a enjoyment of what we were seeing out of each other that it was never that competitive thing. It was, uh, you're great. Um, maybe, how can we help you? Or maybe, you know what, don't, I don't need this line. That would be funnier on him or funnier on her. And so that sense of we're an ensemble and, we, and we're gonna ping off each other in this way, not as solo artists, but as a group act happened very quickly. And, and as, I, you know, as, as Curb is, not scripted Seinfeld how how tied were you guys to the script by the time we shot if if the word was and and we said but we did another take um you know they wanted it understandably the way they wrote it excuse me I'm so sorry um they took great pains to make sure every word was every word and the right word and they wanted it the way they wrote it and you know um I think the person who had the most trouble learning it was probably Jerry because he wasn't, he hadn't, I mean, he learned all his stand-up stuff, but he had leeway doing stand-up. Right. Um, Julia and Michael and I had grown up learning, you got to learn the lines of the script. So, right. um, but it was very scripted. It's always flattering when people think it was improvisational because it just means we, we looked like we were doing it spontaneously, but it absolutely was, did. And so at what point do you know that you've gone from, oh my God, are we going to get picked up to we've got a hit? Somewhere in the third season after they had- It took that long for you guys to know that? Yes, but you know, you got to remember the first season was four episodes. Right. Second season was 13 episodes and they put us all over the schedule. So if you wanted to watch us, you'd have to find us. Um, In the third season, and I don't remember how early in, but they- they decided it was sink or swim time. So they put us on after cheers. So they were handing us the, the biggest audience in television. Right. And the the challenge was if, if we hand you the big audience and you lose them, 
you're never going to get an audience. So get the hell out. But if you hold them, you might you might have some. And shortly after we got into that slot, in my memory, and again, you know, there are Seinfeld aficionados who go, you couldn't be more wrong. This is just <laughs> how I remember it. This is my, my memory of it. But somewhere early on in that slot, my memory is, is that we did the contest episode. And that was such an audacious and unbelievably <laughs> masterfully uh, executed idea and script yes. mm-hmm. that the response to it was like a supernova. And from that point on, we said, well, we're here now. We can we could screw it up, but we've made it. If we don't screw it up, I think we have some job security. But that that was when it began somewhere in that season. And I would imagine around that time is when life had a change in the world for you, because now you are. Yeah, I guess it changed in subtle ways. You know, it was it's not like being a beetle. Um, it wasn't like you get off the plane at, at Newark and all of a sudden there's a, you know, mobs. Um, it happened nicely and gradually, but we were playing in a different swimming pool. My career was suddenly in a different swimming pool. I was getting meetings at, at a different level. Um, I, I had a, my own production company at one point where I was generating stuff. And um, I never found it incredibly hard to move through the I mean I kept going to the market I kept going to the movies I didn't change my life um how just, annoying would it be I would imagine at the beginning it's a little thrilling maybe a, sometimes an annoyance to have people coming up to you and repeating all of your lines these pretzels are making me th- I mean people have to be doing this to you all the time is it does it stay a pleasure is it a pain in the ass Where's that fine line? In the beginning, it took a little adapting to, not because I didn't appreciate it on some level, but I was and am still intrinsically, in some ways, a shy and somewhat introverted guy. Mm -hmm. And compliments still make me fold in on myself. Too much attention in some ways makes me fold in on myself. But if I give into that, people think I'm not responding to them. Mm. They, 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 especially because of the persona I put out most of the time of being kind of <laughs> an extrovert and gregarious and, you know, and cocky. If I give into my, my real impulses, people will think I'm, I'm purposely not responding to them. But what, so I had to, it was uncomfortable for a little while as I, as I developed a kind of a percentage a personality that could handle those exchanges in a, in a, a positive way. But I don't think I ever made anybody f- feel badly, but it, it, it was a little more off-putting to me and then it became something I could handle in stride. But I, I the answer to your, do you ever get tired of it, um, goes back to my mom. And uh, somewhat to a conversation I had with Bill Shatner, I won't go into the whole Shatner story, but one of the disappointments my mother had when I chose to be an actor is she would say to me often when I was a kid, I hope you live a life of service to other people. That's the greatest thing you can do. And in medicine, that was, that was mm-hmm. her calling to be of service. And, you know, I would think of myself as an actor and I'd go, this is not serving anybody except me. I'm getting a lot of accolades for this. I'm making a hell of a good living. 
I'm, I'm living a life I couldn't have dreamed of. And I guess I'm okay at this. And people go, woo, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's a big ego-y thing, but I never thought of it as being of service to anyone. Mm. There's something in particular about the Seinfeld show that began very early in its run and continues to this very day. And it, I get a taste of it at least once a week where someone will either write to me or come up to me to talk about a very dark time in their life when they were either ill themselves or someone they loved was ill or dying or they were out of work or they, I've talked to soldiers who were serving overseas and were miserable, and, but dark times. And they go on to tell me a story about how that show and particularly my work, hi puppy, um, <laughs> Rufus, brought back laughter to them and reconnected them to life rather than their own misery. And, and they thanked me for it as if it was something I was doing for them. And I have come to feel like maybe that is exactly why I was given something like that, was to fulfill my mother's thing of being nervous. Oh. So when people come up to me, you know, and they talk about Seinfeld, I go, boy, you must really love it because it was, it ended a long time ago and I know it's alive in such a profound way. But I never say anything other than, I am so glad we're there for you. I'm glad we were there for you then. If you're taking joy from it now, what a great thing. That's something I was part of years after we did it for that big an audience, for as long as we were able to do it, still has resonance, still brings joy, still is impactful for people. That's a gift. Some actors, and I understand it would look at something like that and say, hey, I was in my 30s, man. I'm in my 60s now. Can you focus on something else? I've done other stuff. It's the wrong way to look at it because most of us do other stuff for our entire careers, but we don't get one of those. Most of us don't get. No. We don't no. get one. No. And to have had one whenever you've been lucky enough to have it, you just say thank you. And you say, thank you, thank you, thank you till the day you die. And then your children who inherit all that good grace continue to say thank you. It was a gift. I know it's a gift in people's lives. It was a gift to me and my family. And I am endlessly grateful for it. I don't remember much, you know, about people want to talk about episodes. And I go, I don't remember that because I haven't watched it in so long. But I'm always happy to, to talk to somebody about it if it brings them joy. That's, that's a thrill. You know, I promised to uh, to honor the time. And it's like, I have a gazillion more questions, but maybe you'll come back and do another one. But before you go, I, I want to uh, I want to ask you about the podcast you're about to start, which- Oh, you're so sweet. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a, <laughs> apparently podcasting is a thing. And I don't know, <laughs> not many people are into it yet, but um, <laughs> I'm always a little late to the, to the train. Um, my, I don't know about my that. My dear, dear friend, Peter Tilden, who uh, mm -hmm. has been my creative partner for- 25 years, we've developed series together. We've developed live shows together. Uh, Peter was a professional. Can you give us an, I mean, oh, Nancy's on. Hi, Nancy, I love you. It's because uh, of you there. that Jason's here. Um, um, Peter was a very successful talk radio host here in LA and he left radio and he said, you know, I want to do a podcast. And we were, we were thinking about, you know, what uh, podcast, who needs another podcast? What would we do? What would we do? And we realized that a lot of our conversations where we're, we're both, curious about things and we would deliver little factoids or stories or something to each other and inevitably the the response to it would be really <laughs> 
that's a thing that happens why that's ridiculous that's crazy that's insane so we decided that our show would be called really no really and it, it is it's it's peter and i there are guests we do do interviews but they're generally not celebrities in the in the sense of of uh you know a celebrity show but um, like a perfect example, and you'll hear one of these. We, we, we come on the air in February and we're through the iHeart folks. So, um, But Jerry Seinfeld used to do a, a really great premise about uh, in one of his comedy routines about why is it in a public restroom that the bathroom stall door doesn't go all the way to the ground? <laughs> what's, with, what's with the little viewing window? You know, this is his routine. What's with the window to see that your sad, pathetic pants and your, your forlorn belt, you know? And we were trying to figure out, well, could it be so you know someone's in there? And you go, no, because if you turn the dial, it says vacant or you know, what could it be? Why would they do that? It's so dumb. So we did an episode trying to find out why it is. And we eventually find our way to an award-winning public bathroom designer. and We get the answer. And then the answer leads us into a conversation about why are we so seemingly willing and cavalier to surrender our privacy? Why are we doing that? So it starts with something very small and specific and kind of goofy. And then the episodes kind of take on a bigger idea and conversation. And we've, we've, we've been banking them because we know we're, we've also, oh, so you've already, you've already we've done been recording them, um, you know, because we, we have to do one a week once the, the thing starts and, and right. there are times when I can't record. So we're trying to bank a bunch, but we're also finding the format as we go. And in fact, you know, about eight episodes in, the format completely changes. And But it is essentially that show of things that make us go, really? So if you listen to it, hopefully it's entertaining, hopefully it's funny, and uh, and you will learn stuff every time. It will make you think and you will learn stuff. It's kind of like a funny version of how things work. <laughs> That's fantastic. And so how do you, how, can you give me one example of how you've incorporated a celebrity to come in and do this with you? We have not had a, a what you would think of as a standard celebrity. We did an episode on competitive eating and we had competitive, <laughs> you know champion competitive eaters come in. We did an episode about reality shows and we had a woman on, I think her name is Laura Ziering. She has been a winning competitor on Naked and Afraid several times. And, you know, talking about, well, how much of that is reality? And by the way, you're naked, you're in the heat, there's no food, they're not feeding you, right? You have to tap out if you if you want to get some water. So, you know, if, if there are those kinds of celebrities. And, you know, there are things that we would, this, it won't, it's not a celebrity interview show. Right. We could potentially do a thing about the, the travesties of being a, uh, a marijuana farmer even though yes. it's, legal, it's still fraught with problems. Well, somebody who's really done very well with that is Jim Belushi. So we could ostensibly have somebody like Jim Belushi on, but we only want to talk about that. We only have Tommy about... Chong on too. Right, exactly. So <laughs> yeah. it, it, it would not be the sort of standard celebrity interviews that most people think of. It would be right. for a very specific topic. Okay, well, I, I'm, I'm, okay, so tell us when. Uh, we, as far as I know, we, we go, we debut, although it's a podcast, right? So once it goes on, you just go get them. Um, 
I think well, they said, no, well, because no, they'll drop them. Right? They'll drop like they'll once drop. a week. Yeah. yeah. But once they're up, they're up, you know. Right. Uh, once they're up. Yeah. I think it's the week of February 9, maybe. Is okay. What I and, and iHeart is your platform, your primary platform. Uh, as we always say, you can get it on the iHeart <laughs> app, the Apple app, or wherever you get your podcast. That's the line that's been drilled into my brain at this point. Jason, thank you so much for doing mine. Um, the, um, you are, you have exceeded all my very high you expectations. Are so you are very kind. This is no, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. And Nancy's saying he's also a great poker player. We didn't get to the poker. We didn't get to a lot of things. So <laughs> I'm only slightly the... better than Nancy. I'm not a great poker player. I'm slightly better than Nancy and not every day, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so, so, so much. My and pleasure. I wish you the best with everything. And I love, I, I wanted to hear how your technique and acting and how you teach it. There's, I have a lot more questions. So maybe there'll we'll be a little back. window in you. You will come back. I'll come back in February. We'll hype the show. I'll talk to you more. Thank you so much. Have a Happy wonderful holidays. Evening. Have a wonderful new year, Vic. You too, Jason. Thank All you. Right. Bye.